Father, we, we love sitting at your feet, listening to your word. Our spirits rejoice when we hear it. And Father, you know we have a problem. Our flesh does not so much rejoice when we hear it. But we had asked that you would help us, as your word says, offer our bodies to you, offer our thoughts, bring every thought captive. And we ask that you would help us to be successful in this as we submit to the will of your spirit who guides us here on this earth. We pray also that it would have its effect that we would simply not be readers of the word or hearers, but doers. May you motivate us from the depths of our heart to love you as you love your Father, our Father. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Amen. Last time we left off with Jesus on his triumphal entry, it was the first day of the week, Palm Sunday. It was one week before Resurrection Sunday, and Jesus made a choice to do this. He was submissive to the will of the Father. They said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And in Luke 19.38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now they were praising Jesus for who he was and the things that he had done. But in just a few days, they'd be crucifying him. They'd be making this choice to switch their allegiance from that of praise to that of cursing. And Jesus had a a purpose in presenting himself. It was doing the will of the Father in fulfilling prophecy, showing himself, according to the book of Daniel that we went over last time. And Jesus, or just like Jesus, we have a purpose as well. God calls us to do certain things, and we have a choice to make. We can either choose to do his will, or we can choose not to do his will. There are good choices out there, and there are bad choices. There are choices your neighbors make, and choices that you make that affect each other. Have you ever parked somewhere in your neighborhood and your neighbor comes out and says, don't park in front of my house, that's my spot, even though it's a public street, and then it does something to your relationship because they are so, I guess the word would be obtuse. Or what about the neighbor that doesn't take care of their house, just lets it degrade and fall into disrepair, and you're working at your house and keeping it nice and neat, the place where you live, Does that affect your relationship there? Some people think they're just an island. I can do what I want and it doesn't affect anybody. Well, that's really not the case. And the choices we make, there are temporal consequences and there are eternal consequences. Now, with that, the question comes up, well, what did God foreordain that I should be doing? What is my destiny? Where am I going? And this all leads or sets the table for the next couple of chapters, the way that I'm going here. Well, our destiny is, for one, to be born, to be saved, and to be glorified as believers. That's what God wants. We go through this process. Acts chapter 17, 26 tells us God determined the exact times and the places where we should live. That means we're all existing right now according to the will of God. And we know that we were saved, we were called, we were here, we've given our life to Christ, Romans eight twenty nine. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to his likeness of his son, that he might be born among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's a point where we're going to arrive that God's going to glorify us, that we are going to shine like the stars in heaven. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about that. 
So we are appointed, we are destined to be born, to be saved, to be glorified. Do you know we are also destined and appointed to die? That is because of the curse that came as a result of Adam and Eve and the fall. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to the house of the morning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. So that is the course that we are on. Eventually, we will all arrive there. And as believers, we are destined to avoid God's wrath. We know that from 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And for the wicked... There is a destiny of destruction. Several places in Scripture, Matthew uh, 25, verse 46, and also Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, says there's an appointment with judgment, some to eternal life, some to eternal contempt or everlasting contempt or everlasting punishment. And so these are the destiny of all humankind, whether we are being saved or whether we are being cursed. These things God has foreordained. A couple of these have nothing to do with our choices. For instance, did you choose when you wanted to be born? Did you sign up, okay, I'll be born, and you fill in your birth date and what year? No, you you didn't get that choice. Have you made the choice of when you would like to die? Would you like to know the day of your death? What would that be like? It's tomorrow. You know, what are you going to do? And God hides that information from us. He doesn't hide it from everybody. But he hides it from most everybody. Not knowing that, I think, is a blessing. But we don't get to choose it. We don't get to choose when we die unless we are stupid and foolish. Have you seen any videos on the Internet of stupid acts that lead to injury? People getting hurt. I I saw one guy, he put all over his body this gel that's flammable decided to light himself on fire and run into the bay as fast as he could. That's just dumb. That's just foolish behavior which is out there. And you could die from doing something like that. Have you seen the new haircut style that's out there for men? They pull the hair up real high and they light it on fire and they comb through it as it's on fire. Could anything wrong happen? As a result of that, I mean, just stupid acts that we have out there, things that we follow, they just don't make sense. And so with all of that, we know that we don't want to be foolish and die before our time. But there are many choices we have made and many that we will make that will have temporal and eternal consequences. And we're going to see this in a minute with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, how they had choices to make. And they made the wrong ones. Now, some of our choices are good and some of our choices are bad. For instance, getting saved, we have a choice from our perspective. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We know that. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. All who call on the name of the Lord or everyone who does, that's a good choice. Why? Because we get to live or exist forever in eternal bliss in the presence of God where there is nothing but goodness. Also, it is good to gain reward from God by doing good works. That's a good choice. Could you imagine getting to heaven and having absolutely no reward? You got saved, but as Job talks about being saved by the skin of his teeth, that's because we made a choice on earth to do for God something or many things, or we made a choice 
not to do for God many things or nothing at all. That's what we choose. We get to choose that. And so we're planning ahead. We're sending on our credit to heaven. The things that are credited to us, the work, God's rewarding us for that. And the reward comes in heaven. If we choose not to do anything, we have no reward. And who gets what reward? Well, God is going to determine all of that. And it's going to be based on how we do it, why we do it, what the motivation is, those types of things. Even Paul said in Philippians 4.17, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account because he was interested in receiving help or he had received help from the Philippians and that was monetarily. And he said, you know, I'm not looking for anything for myself, but it's a blessing for you if you give monetarily. Now, there are biblical uh, examples of choosing incorrectly. Can you think of somebody off of the top of your head that made a really poor choice? How about the guy that had the big fish problem? Remember him? Jonah? God told him to go one way, and where did he go? The opposite way. And then he was confronted with the people on the boat, the men on the boat. They said, aren't you going to pray to your God? We're going to perish out here because of the storm. He goes, no, I know the problem. They said, well, what's the problem? God told me to go one way, and I went the other way. This is Bill's version of the Bible, by the way. <laughs> and so he went the other way, and he goes, you know, you can end all this by just throwing me in the water. Oh, good choice, Jonah. Good choice. <laughs> Threw him in the water. Now, I have been down there. I have seen big fish, fish as big as me, fish bigger than me. The first time you see a two or 300-pound black sea bass, you just marvel. If you ever get a chance to go over to Catalina, they are in the kelp over there. And they are so, let's just say, not smart that you can go almost right up to them and touch them. And their scales, one scale on a fish is about that big. Its eyeball is about this big. And they are bigger than any diver that is down there. They're just massive. And that's why they put them on the protected species list because they're so easily killed. They're so trusting. But they were big. The first time I saw a grouper, I go, what is that? I remember being above a snapper once and the snapper was down in in some of the uh, foliage, the ocean foliage that was down there. And I looked and I had to look again. It was so big down there. And... They're big fish. You get thrown in. I wouldn't want to be swallowed by one because of a bad decision, which is out there. Jonah was swallowed. Okay, he made a bad decision. What about Jezebel? Remember Jezebel? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, she was married to a guy by the name of Ahab. That's right. And she coerced and and counseled Ahab to do wrong things. And Ahab was a whiner. But because of the evil which she perpetrated upon the people at that time, God said, because of this, you're going to die, and they won't even find your body. And sure enough, she was eaten by dogs. Everything was kind of carried away. I think her hands were left. Bad decision to make bad choices. Well, what about Judas? Did he make a bad choice? Forever in hell. Because he sold out. Jesus said, or actually the word says, it would be better for him to have never been born. And we can actually read that there. Well, what about Herod, 
who was full of pride. He had a sparkly coat on. If you go to Caesarea Maritima, you can sit in the amphitheater there where he would have been. In the backdrop, you have the ocean, and that's the way the amphitheater faces. And with the sun coming up, especially if it's in the morning, if he had a really glittery type uh, garment on, it would have sparkled. And he began to speak, and the people praised him, saying, this is not a voice of a man, this is a voice of a God. And God judged him at that point, and he was eaten alive from the inside by worms because of the pride. Made bad choice. It was really a bad choice. And then the final two are Miriam and Aaron. Miriam and Aaron in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 12, they decided that they didn't like Zipporah because she was a Cushite. Zipporah was married to Moses. And so they started to complain and gossip about Zipporah. And God said, all right, come here. I want to talk to you too. Again, Bill's version of the Bible. And they they came over, and all of a sudden Miriam had leprosy all over her because of her complaining and moaning and bickering against Zipporah. Of course, nothing happened to Aaron, and I, I don't know why, Nothing happened to him. I think God wanted to put the fear of God in him, maybe. Aaron made another bad choice with making an idol and said, the, it just came out of the fire. We just threw our gold in there. I mean, just stupid choices. Of course, Miriam, after seven days, she was healed. But there are stupid choices that people have made in the Bible. Now, there are also earthly, earthly examples of choosing poorly. For instance, an elderly man throws away a Euro Millions lottery ticket, October 2010, worth 181 million euros. Threw it away. And there's, if you look on the internet, there's a couple of examples of people who threw away these tickets. Not that I'm saying go out and buy tickets, but you get this, just a stupid mistake, a dumb mistake. What about this one? NASA uses the metric system while Lockheed Martin uses the English system when building a satellite. You think there's going to be problems? Yeah, $165.6 million mistake. They lost the satellite as a result of that. Uh, What about this one? You'll identify with this one. A hunter starts the biggest fire in California history. Remember the hunter that decided to light off a flare in the middle of summer? Caused $1.2 billion in losses. And 2,322 homes were lost and 14 people killed. Bad choice. Well, what about this one? The final one. Faulty equipment causes the Challenger to explode on liftoff. It was $5.5 billion mistake and seven people died. All because they were so rushed to get this thing built The seals were bad, the weather was cold, and it led to disaster. Bad choices which are out there. Now, most of us are not in the category of making these kinds of bad choices. Granted, you know, we do make some bad choices, and all it takes is a minute of reflection to look back and say, you know, that was a dumb choice. This was really an error on my part. I never should have done that. I never should have said that. And so there are certainly temporal, earthly consequences for those of us who make poor decisions. And in our relationship to God, our choices have eternal consequences. That's what I'm going to talk to you about this morning. The Pharisees and the Sadducees made some terrible choices for which they would suffer forever. 
These aren't choices that would just affect them so much temporally, but they would affect them eternally. In chapters 21 through 23, we're going to see the choices that they made and the consequences that resulted in chapter 23. And and God lumps all of these things together. And it has to do, these chapters have to do with the choices that the Pharisees are making, the decisions that they go through because they have such a disdain for Jesus. Things that they do, Jesus just wipes the map with them, so to speak. Now, the title for these chapters, I would say, in in reference to choices, would be Doing It Wrong. Now, we can learn from people that make mistakes. We can learn not to repeat those things. I've used this illustration before. What if you have a block of wood and you have a knife and you're whittling on the block of wood? Do you pull towards you or do you push away? You push away. Why? It's a good choice to push away. What if you do it like this? I I just saw this little video of a guy who took a crowbar. And he wanted to pull a nail out of the side of his shed. And he took it, and he, it, it's about this long, and it has this hook on it where the tong is to pull out the nail. So he sticks it up there, and he starts like that, and all of a sudden it gives loose, and that tong hits him right in the head, and he's just hold, Bad choice. It was a bad choice to do that, you know. You, you could also lift up on the nail, and you're not going to have to worry about hitting yourself in the head. And so it is choices doing it wrong. Now there were the money changers making bank off of the people. There was the blind lane and the children, the jealousy driven in their objections. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they're confronted about that. And we're going to get into each one of these. And, and then there's Jesus who cursed the fig tree. Well, what does that represent and why was that done? And Jesus was expecting fruit from the nation of Israel and he didn't get it because of their poor choices. The authority of Jesus was questioned. They desired to stop Jesus and that in itself was a poor choice. And he goes on to illustrate how they're making these poor choices in their behavior towards God. The two sons that come up in the parable that's listed. In the chapters that we will see, Jesus says the prostitutes are better than the priests. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody thought they were religious and righteous and a teacher comes up and says, no, the prostitutes are better than you. That is the ultimate insult. And what about the wicked, wicked tenants of the vineyard? He goes into that story as well because of the choices that they had made. Chapter 22, through illustration, when invited, they refused to come to a wedding. You know, there's some weddings you don't want to miss, like your own. You don't want to miss that, right? That would be a bad choice. They also tried to trap Jesus by his answers. Do you think you can trap God in his answers? And they tried. They tried doing this through uh, the idea of paying taxes to Caesar. They wanted to trap him in his words. Also, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they wanted it. They made this decision. Let's go question him. How is he going to answer this? Because there is no resurrection. And he said, you're foolish. You err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. And again, he just wiped the floor or the mat with them. And they were so astonished at the answers that Jesus gave to them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that they just walked away. 
And then the people themselves, they heard these answers and they marveled. It it would have been kind of like a fist fight. And Jesus gives this metaphorical blow to the face. And the people go, whoa, that was was good. You got him. And the people just marveled at how Jesus answered because they're trying to trip him up because their bad choices of just having this disdain for Jesus. Jesus was going to have no part of it. And God is going to have no part of it. And finally, so effective in his answers, Jesus stumps them, and they are left speechless. And so they they just don't answer anymore. They stop answering him, and then they go off and make another dumb choice. How are we going to kill this guy? And, And so you see all these dumb choices that come up. Now, in chapter 23, he instructs the people and his disciples, do not be like the teachers of the law. Why? because of their choices and their actions. They were full of pride and they were self-centered. And Jesus goes on, he finishes up this section by pronouncing seven woes. And woe, let me tell you, these are not good. And it's all a result of what they decided to do. At the end, in the seven woes, now, if you like somebody, you're not going to say these things. He called them, Hypocrites, six times in these chapters, 12 times total in Matthew. He called them blind guides, blind fools, blind men, blind guides again, blind Pharisees, eight times in the entire book of Matthew. He called them wicked snakes and vipers. You think he's trying to be their friend? He's not trying to be their friend. Now, you know, when I I went through school for seminary, they said often you want to take some passages and you want to rewrite them so you understand them better because everything that happened back then was in a different culture. It was a different time. So how do you transfer some of these names to today? What would you be calling somebody today if they acted like these Pharisees and Sadducees, like snakes and vipers? Well, I decided to look look some words up. How about this little phrase? You lazy, good-for-nothing, insolent, two-faced, lying, cheating, self-centered, scumbag, low-life, scoundrel, nincompoop, nitwit, blockhead, idiot, imbeciles. That's what Jesus would be saying to those Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I, I started to contemplate this a little bit. How does that fly with Ephesians 4.29? Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only was helpful for the building up of others according to their need. Apparently, their need was great to be called imbeciles in our vernacular snakes vipers john the baptist called them that as well and so i guess there is a time for that kind of language but you better use the wisdom of god in order to do that and if you need a default setting wholesome talk only if it's led by god that's one thing but if you need a default if you want to err on one side err on the side of grace but there is a time where we can be angry and we can sin not and God had reached his limit although he is patient waiting to the great white throne judgment for these people to be ultimately judged and we're going to see there to witness it now going on with this we're going to pick it up in verse 12 here we have a choice that the Pharisees made Jesus, entering the temple area, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called, <clears throat> excuse me, called a house of prayer. 
but you are making it a den of robbers. Excuse me a minute. You turn over to John chapter 2. We have another time where Jesus cleared the temple. Now this one is a little more graphic. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. This is a story of the first time Jesus cleared the temple. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he was, had spoken of was his body. And after he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in him. So this is where I talked about last week, the zeal for his father's house. Do we have that kind of zeal? Remember, I had to do the handshake. There's not much zeal in the handshake that's a handshake like a fish as opposed to gripping somebody's hand and having determination. That's who Jesus was and that's who he, that's who he uh, wanted to betray. Somebody who is strong in character and determined for the Father and that's how we're supposed to be. Now, what was going on here that Jesus would do this twice? First of all, in John, he makes a whip. Now, I tried to envision what this would have been. Knowing a little bit about the Temple Mount, Jesus would have walked up from the steps that would have been on the south side of the Temple Mount. He would have come through the <clears throat> this uh, passageway that would have led to the Temple Mount area through the wall. <clears throat> and as he would have come there and approached the outer courts, he would have seen all these tables set up in the court of the Gentiles is where these things were set up. And there would be these large tables no doubt they were either made of wood, nice, big, thick tables of wood, or they were made out of marble or stone that would have been there. And so Jesus walks up. He sees this. I could see him persping his lips like that, just watching what's going on. And then he got some material to make a whip. Now, what did he make the whip out of? I'm not quite sure. Did he buy the materials? Or did he just grab them from somewhere, probably sat down, started braiding this thing, just going through it, or did he go, like knitting? No, I don't think he was knitting. I think he put this thing together, and he stood up and goes, crack, crack that thing, walked over, said, that's it, and probably put two hands underneath a table like for instance the way that i'm facing he would have walked up to the outside of the table grabbed it like this and thrown it back on the people who would have been sitting behind 
and then goes over to the pins that hold the sheep and the cages with the doves in there. He probably would have opened those cages, released the birds that were in there, took the whip, and started whipping the cattle. Now, I have talked to some people in the past. Do you think he just used the whip on the animals or that he also used it on the people? And some people object. Jesus would never do that. I I don't know that he would never do that. And he came in and he cleared everybody out. And they wondered, what what authority do you have? And he he didn't even answer them. He just kept on bowling it over. So he shows up a second time that we're reading in Matthew, does the same thing. Here he comes again. You know, and they, they got the guards and it was just mayhem everywhere. Well, what were they doing in there that would make him so upset? Why would it be a problem? Well, they had a racket. They were making money. And they were making money, how do you say, hand over foot, so to speak. They had these tables of the money changers. Now, you would deal in the Roman coin at that time. And when you came to the temple, you had to make an offering to the temple. But you could not make an offering to the temple unless you did it in the temple money. So you had to take your money and you had to transfer it into the temple money. And of course, there was a fee. Now, if you go to a foreign country today, like Israel, you can go out to an ATM. And in the ATM, you can throw in there 10, 20, $100 and it will spit back out at you shekels minus the exchange rate. You can do that. You can do that in airports as well. They'll charge you. And so what they were doing is saying, We have our own temple money. The world's money is unclean and we can't use that. And we're going to exchange this after all. It does cost for us to have these people out here in these tables and the area made suitable for you to come up and exchange your money. So we're going to charge you a little bit. And they were making gobs of money doing that. Then they had the animals there. Now, some people, when they'd come to Jerusalem, they wouldn't bring their animals. Oh, we can just buy it at the market. Be fine. Jacob, come on. And and so they, all right, I'll leave my sacrifice here, you know, somewhere up in Galilee. And they'd walk down. They'd get there. And I'd like to buy a lamb, a late model lamb, uh, maybe only one year old, no blemishes, dents or dings. I'd I'd like that to offer a sacrifice. And the, the guy would say, well, we have some fresh models in for you. And they'd take them over to the little cage over there, the little pen or the stall. They said, now this, this one, look at this beauty, just came in today. And it's been sheared and taken care of no problems never been caught or harassed in any way and we can give it to you for 49.99 today if you buy today and of course they were making bank off the animals as well and sometimes those poor people would bring their animals and they would inspect them and the animals they'd look at them and say well you know it's a feather missing here in this bird you got to buy our bird you know it's no problem we'll we'll take this one off your hands we'll give you a trade in value and they would set it off to the side and then the person would go have their sacrifice and then they'd take that one and put it in the pen to be sold again that's what they would do and Jesus had just had it with that. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, zeal is good, but I would say, you know, if you're zealous for God, what would it harm if somebody who is a minister or somebody who is an evangelist trusts 
that God is just going to provide everything and doesn't charge a thing. To come and speak, to come and lead people to the Lord, would that be good or would that be not good? No, that would be good because then that means they have to trust in God. But what if they charged admission to come hear a speaker? If a church, and now I'm just going to give you some personal philosophy here. We bring in a guest speaker. I'm not going to come to you and say, you know, this costs us to bring in these guest speakers for your benefit. And so we'd like you to just write an extra check. Don't neglect your own giving to the church, but we'd like you to write an extra check. Could you just go ahead and put in the copy box or no, today we'll pass it back. That would be good to pay for this person to come in. That person coming in should be willing to speak for nothing. And if they get something, great. And we try to give something to everybody who comes. We pay them an honorarium. It may not be much, but we pay them an honorarium. And that's how it should be. I believe it is very dangerous to become wealthy through the bringing the gospel and teaching God's word. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's any other way to say it. First Timothy 6.3 says this about false teachers. It says, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Imagine this. Some guy chooses to go into ministry. You know, I can make a living doing this. I can speak pretty good. I could charge so much. And you know, this, this would be good. So I'm going to take this on as a profession. God says never to do that. Hebrews chapter 5. No one is to take that honor upon themselves. They must be called by God. Like priests, he was referring to in the book of Hebrews. I believe it's the same thing with pastors. You must be called by God. You can't look at it as a profession where you can make a living at this thing. Because you might not make a living at this thing. And then you'll have to trust in God. And God is faithful. He always provides. But ministries out there, and believe me, if if I were to write a book and I would send it out there, and I want to make money that way, great. And there are ministers who do that. But there are ministers that charge extra and over and above so that they can have their jets. Or if they don't get their $8 million, God's going to take them home. I say, amen. Go home. We're not supposed, as ministers of the gospel, we're not supposed to seek to get rich off of giving the gospel or teaching God's word. That's why we try to keep any cost that might inure back to anyone that's here to the exact cost. We don't want to charge over and above. Like, for instance, if we had a retreat and we said, you know, the actual cost of the retreat is $80, but we need to charge 300 After all, it costs. You know, there are fees involved for this, and we need to make sure we cover those. Whatever happened to the person who just says, you know, I'm going to trust in God. We're not going to charge anything. Freely you have received, freely give. So as a warning, if you hear somebody that they're going to charge an exorbitant amount for something, some MP3 or whatever it might be, be wary of them. Be wary of those who seek to get rich off the gospel. Now, 
it was a bad choice on the part of the Pharisees and Sadducees to turn God's house into a marketplace. Jesus called it a den of thieves. So that's their first bad choice. Their bad choice was they were greedy. They wanted money. By the way, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it talks about those who are homosexual offenders. It talks about those who are not going to make it into heaven, that they're deceived. And one of the ones on top of the list is greed. And people tend to forget. You mean greed is like a big sin in the eyes of God? Uh Uh-huh, it is. And that's who the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. They were greedy. They were a greedy bunch of people. And the way that we're supposed to be with our money is we're supposed to be givers of our money. Whenever we see a problem, we give to that problem if the Lord places it upon our heart or a ministry. We give because the Lord places it upon our heart. We're not supposed to say, remember Acts chapter 5? There were two people that died because they lied about a sum of money that they had sold a field for and they actually lied to God and God said, hey, because you lied... That's it. Peter actually said it. And they fell down dead one at a time. Ananias and Sapphira. And and because they were greedy for the money. They wanted to hold on. They didn't have to lie about it. But they thought they'd be more spiritual if they just set this amount and it was actually another amount. And so it was a bad choice on the part of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to be greedy. And we should learn from that to not be greedy ourselves. Then we have the blind the lame and the children shouting praise. In verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. He healed them. Now, take note of this here. This sentence is verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Now, indignant means greatly afflicted they were blowing their top so to speak maybe not verbalizing everything but they were red faced veins popping out you know you see some people they just really get angry and they get that redness going and the veins different you go wow look at those big veins in your head you know they just they just start coming out that's how these guys were and it's because they saw quote the wonderful things that Jesus was doing. Healing the lame and the blind and the children going, praise God, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. And then they come up to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. There's a question mark, but I think there should probably be an exclamation point there. Yes, Jesus replied, have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Hmm? And and of course, they, they didn't want to hear that. I'm Sure, they just shuffled right off and they were indignant over this. That's what the word says, indignant. They were greatly afflicted over this. And they made a bad choice. Why were they so upset at something so good? It's like if somebody came in here in a wheelchair, we prayed for them, and they stood up and walked out. And somebody in here goes, why did you do that? God tells us to pray for those who are sick or injured or who want prayer. That's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, but you didn't ask me. You didn't ask me to pray for that. No, we didn't. Sorry. That's the problem of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were envious. 
that Jesus was doing these miracles and the people were turning towards him. They wanted the same praise and accolades coming to themselves. And you might say, well, that's not what it says right there. No, but it does say it somewhere else. Proverbs twenty-seven fifteen. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. See, they envied Jesus and his position. They were jealous of him. Now, the word that is used here is, quote-unquote, envy, and it is an emotion of coveting that someone coveting what someone else has while jealousy is the emotion related to fear that something you have may be taken away by someone else you see the difference in the two so envy is like covetousness i want that that should be mine by all rights you know we've been serving as priests over here and levites forever and look you come johnny come lately you've only been around a couple of years here and what do you think you're deserving and they think you're deserving nothing we've worked at this all of our lives and here you come mr miracle worker and blah 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 they keep on going on and we know it was because of envy that they turned them over jealousy is a fear of loss somebody's going to take something away from you but envy moves itself to action that you're going to cause someone ill will because of what they're doing and these guys were full of envy so their bad choice was being envious we should never look at somebody else and their circumstances and say i want that that should be mine patty and i recently were down on the bayfront and we were walking by the uh, convention center down there on the bay. And as we walked down towards Petco Park, we looked over and there were a couple of boats. Nice boats. You know, I, I look at one and one's probably 60, 70 feet. Oh, that's nice. A couple of guys out there scrubbing away on it, you know, buffing up everything. Nice boat. It's great. Be great for diving. You know, I'm thinking to myself... And then right next to it was this five-story, midnight blue behemoth that probably has its own speedboats and sea-dews in it and luxury master suites. And you're looking at that thing going, wow, I never once said, that should be mine. Never once did I do that. I don't want the headache or something like that. Somebody else might... But why envy what somebody else has? God will reward us for what we do and what we have and how we use our resources. We don't have to worry about somebody else, what they do have or what they don't have, and be jealous of them or envious of them. It's not the thing to do. It's the wrong choice. And if somebody gets blessed because of something, well, great. Fantastic for you. Praise God. He chose to bless you. It's wonderful. But we should never be envious or jealous of anybody. Well, I wish I had that. Oh, somebody's going to take something away from me. No. We have an inheritance. You know, when we get to heaven, we're going to look back and we're going to say, Why? 
was I so jealous? Why was I so envious? Look at us. We're shining. I got light coming out of my fingers. You know, it's just, it's going to be a great place to be. And we are so consumed with ourselves here. Now, I'm not just saying you are so consumed with yourself. I do the same thing. I look in the mirror. You know, and, and it's, it's all good, but I know that I'm aging as well. And it's like, oh, well, aging, falling apart, wonderful. I get a new body. I'm not going to worry about it now. You want to be a good steward over the things that you have and your life and all of that. That's wonderful. But jealousy and envy and the rock stars who are out there and all the wealth, eh, it doesn't matter. This is the second bad choice of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were envious. First they were greedy, then they were envious. Then we have the cursed fig tree. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night early in the morning as he was on his way back to the city. He was hungry, seeing a fig tree by the road. He went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Now in Mark it tells us it was the next day. They walked up the next morning and they saw it withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what has been done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. What a promise. Now, what's the deal with the fig tree? Seems like things are going along here and all of a sudden he shifts to this fig tree. First, about figs. In Israel, if you go there, up by the city of Dan, where the water comes out of the ground at 5,000 gallons a second, they'll take you up to these little benches that are up there. The water's flowing out right behind somebody who would speak, and you see these large fig trees. You can actually smell them. You can smell the fig in the air. And some of the trunks on these trees are like this, and they're probably 25, 30 feet tall. And figs, now, they will drop their leaves. They are deciduous trees, deciduous fruit trees, which means the leaves just fall off a certain time of year. And the first thing to come out is the fruit, normally. Some trees have the leaves come out first. You can have a fig that has both fruit and leaves at the same time. So that probably was the case with this fig tree. Jesus walked up to it. There were fig leaves on it. So he's assuming there should be, right now, figs on there. And he starts looking through it, absolutely no fruit. And so he's probably a little hungry. That's it. Cursed be you, fig tree. And he comes back the next day with his disciples, and the thing is totally withered. Now, to know if it's a root problem, I know a little bit about this. There's a plant here in San Diego called a photinia. Also, oleanders. If you know what an oleander is, they used to be on the freeways everywhere. And if you drive down the freeway, especially North County, you'll see that maybe six will be dead, one's alive, another 20 dead, and another one alive. That's because there's a disease in the soil called armillaria. It's oak root rot. And it attacks the roots of the tree. Same thing with photinias. Photinia fraseri, they're a red plant. They're also susceptible to the same disease. And when they get it, what happens, and it takes about a week or so, the leaves first drop. All the leaves on the plant first drop. Then they turn brown. Just like that. You could be there one week. The next week you come back and they're all dropped. That's how you know it's a root problem. And so Jesus cursed this fig tree right at the roots. Which means the whole tree is going to go. Now why did he do this? 
Well, some people have related the fig tree to the nation of Israel. But if you're looking for fruit and you don't find the fruit, is there something in Scripture that could shed some light on this? Well, there just so happens to be. And it's Isaiah chapter 5. And this deals with a vineyard. And it talks about this husbandman, this man who owned the vineyard, and he sets it all up. He puts a wall around there. He puts a, a wine press in there. He gets everything just right, sets the vines up just good. He gives it to some tenants, and he wants the tenants to take care of it. And chapter 5, it's all poetry. It's all indent, and he talks about how that was a good owner, gave it to the tenants, were wicked tenants, and they let the vineyard fall down and not produce fruit or very much fruit at all. And it should have produced an abundance of fruit. And it tells us in chapter 5 of Isaiah that this vineyard is the nation of Israel. And so what fruit would Jesus be looking for in the nation of Israel that he didn't find? Well, they had made some bad choices. According to Isaiah chapter 5, there was no justice And he looked for justice and saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries, or excuse me, I'll read that again. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So there is no justice. One of the fig fruits, one of the uh, grape clusters should have been justice that he would have found. Verse 8 of chapter 5 says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left, and you live alone in the land. This had to do with the year of Jubilee. You could buy and sell and trade houses inside a walled city, but outside it was to revert back every year of Jubilee and revert back to the family that actually sold it. They weren't doing that. They weren't following the year of Jubilee, and that was because of their greed. So he saw the greed which was there. Also in verse 11, it says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They were drunkards, alcohol. So the fruit Jesus is finding in the nation of Israel is no justice, greed, drunkards. And then verse 12 in Isaiah chapter 5, they have harps and lyres. At their banquets, tambourines, flutes, and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands, which means they didn't honor God. They weren't turning to God and telling him, you know, we're having these feasts, but it's because you have given it to us. No, they're just having parties is what they were doing, not honoring God whatsoever. And then verse 18 says, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as the cart ropes. To those who say, Let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it, let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. They wanted to hasten God's work. Come on, God, do this thing. We want to see it. We wanted to make it happen. They were getting involved, according to verse 18, in the practice of sin and wickedness. They were not acting properly. You see the fruit that God should have found in Israel? And way back in Isaiah's time, he didn't find it. And when Jesus showed up, he didn't find it then either. Verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Do we have that going on today? Absolutely we do. And also in the nation of Israel, they were perverting justice and calling things that were good evil. And those things which were evil They were calling good. Uh, It also goes on to say, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Also, verse 21 says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Pride. 
They were full of pride. And again, drunkenness in verse 22, if you go through that particular chapter. And again, perverting justice in verse 23. That's the type of fruit God found when he showed up to the nation of Israel. And that's why he cursed the fig tree, which may be a picture of the nation of Israel. And from the very roots, he uprooted the people who were there. And of course, in 70 AD, we know that they were cursed. They were attacked by Titus and Titus ransacked the temple and the temple was no more. And so the Jews, instead of acting in faith and producing fruit of righteousness, were acting in a self-interested manner and producing all of these bad sins. It was bad fruit whether it's in the vineyard or if it's in the fig tree, and they chose not to believe God that he would bless them. Instead, they chose to believe in themselves. Uh, Humanist is what they were being. And it was a bad choice to be faithless. So first one was greedy. They made a bad choice here in being greedy. And then they were envious. And then this one that we just saw here, They were also faithless. So these are the mistakes, the choices that these men and women had made. There are more, but specifically it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. My prayer for all of us is that we make good choices because there are choices that have to do with our free will, like salvation. We get to choose from our side. God says, no, I chose you. You didn't choose me. You didn't choose me. And so we understand some of the conflicts in Scripture But we have a lot of choices to make. Are we going to live for God and his kingdom? Or are we going to be preoccupied with this life and all the problems that are here? We will continue this next week. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for the wisdom provided in mistakes that have been made. We ask that you would help us not to make the same mistakes of being, being greedy or envious, Lord. Or being faithless. Help us to produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. But teach us, Lord, from these mistakes which were made. And may we never repeat them. In Jesus' name. And everyone said.